0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Terrorism charges have been filed against the suspect accused of killing four members of the Muslim family in London. What has to transpire for the Crown to lay a charge like that? Well, we'll discuss that. Liberal MP Bob Bertino will join us to discuss his request that the Parliamentary Budget Office review the federal government's commitment to fund Hamilton's LRT. And the Canadian Football League is going ahead with the 2021 season. That's great news. But everybody's asking the same question. Are we going to have fans in the stands? We'll discuss that as well. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Updates about the terrible tragedy, of course, in London. Uh, The Azal family has uh, now told us that uh, nine-year-old Fayez, who, of course, has been in hospital, he was the only surviving member of that terrible tragedy, has now been released. But there are other uh, new twists and turns to uh, what's going on in that particular case. Global's Andrew Graham has some details.
1: Imam Arij Anwar from the London Muslim mosque says none of the young boy's injuries will affect his long-term physical health.
0: We want to leave him surrounded by loved ones right now let them figure out how they want to proceed with his guardianship
1: we're here to support them 100% the case surrounding the attack continues to unfold and prosecutors now allege that each charge against the accused constituted an act of terrorism mosque spokesperson nawaz tahir says the upgraded charges were welcomed by the local muslim community in order for justice to be done and for there to be accountability we have to call this this act this incident uh, what it was and it, it was an act of terror perpetrated against his family and perpetrated against the Muslim community. The accused faces four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. He returns to court next Monday. Andrew Graham, Global News.
0: So just what are the implications of the uh, the charges and uh, what's going to happen going forward? Uh, to talk about this, uh, please welcome back to the program Andrew Fugirley, who is a lecturer and, of course, criminal lawyer, uh, also with the faculty of law at the University of Toronto. Andrew, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show today. Nope, we have a bit of a glitch here I guess trying to get hooked up here with uh, the remote broadcast here, and uh, I guess, okay, we're going to have to hold on for just a couple of seconds here, and I'll uh, wait until we actually make the connection uh, with Andrew in Toronto. Uh, The uh, whole concept of this, and I guess the concern at this stage from the legal community anyway, uh, is the fact that terrorist charges have been laid, and it's relatively new. It doesn't happen very often, and hasn't happened very often in Canada, uh, which is why it raised a few eyebrows, and I think a lot of folks were expecting that, but you're getting into legal definitions of exactly what terrorism is is, uh, and uh, the burden of proof is, uh, is something that I want to talk to Andrew about, too, because I want to find out if this puts extra pressure on the Crown, uh, who are going to be prosecuting this case, uh, to try to prove that, because uh, we have to recall, in all of these major cases like this, uh, the burden a uh, proof is with the, the crown to prove guilt in situations like this and uh, is this going to be problematic for the uh, the crown and the team that's going to be prosecuting this going forward so some interesting twists and turns to this uh, particular case and uh, we're going to try to get the latest from that if, uh, in just a couple of seconds here when Andrew does join us uh, so i think okay we got a connection now good okay andrew uh, thank you so much for joining us today sorry about the hold up here this is the uh, the joy of remote broadcasting hope you're doing well these days doing well uh, thanks for having me again bill good to have you with us maybe you can shed some light on this uh because you and i talked about this uh, just after this attack happened and the word terrorism came up time and time again uh there is a legal definition here uh, and uh, let's maybe get into that just a little bit about what actually uh, has to transpire and what is the crown looking for to actually lay a charge like that uh, so
1: i mean in short it's really what's motivating the attack Uh, And the attack has to be done uh, to further a certain political, moral, religious ideology and has to be done to uh, inspire fear or terror in a specific group in the population or the population as a whole. And so what it means is the act has to go beyond uh, what we would view as just sort of the average or standard criminality that you would see in a case. It has to be done to further a political aim, and it has to be done for the purpose uh, of uh, uh, terrorizing or instilling fear in part or all of the population.
0: Can we assume, uh, because we don't get a whole lot of information from police who are investigating this right now, that there has been some dialogue between uh, between police and and the accused in situations like that to, to get some perspective as to what his intentions were and what the motivation was?
1: Um, I think that you can, well, you can certainly assume that there would have been an attempt by the police to interview him, but realistically, I think there's two sort of separate types of interactions that may have happened in this case. One would have been utterances that took place at the scene of his arrest, and we've got some sense from the the media reports that there were some things that uh, this individual said at the time of his arrest, and after his arrest, uh, they would try to interview him uh, and, uh, potentially glean a confession from him. Um, and it may be that in the course of that interview, if he did speak to the police, that some of his motivation came out, uh, uh through his own words. And, and then that would, assuming that, uh, the, the circumstances of the police statement were legal, uh, and allow it to be admissible, that would be as good a piece of evidence as the police or the crown could have against someone as you could imagine.
0: And, again, we'll, I guess, get the, the, the validation of this at some point in the future when they start making public statements about this. But it's it's a charge that's not often laid, though. And as we were looking back through the history of this, I mean, the Quebec City mosque shootings from a while back, the uh, the, the Edmonton situation where an individual rammed uh, right into a police officer killing him with an ISIS flag in, on his vehicle, uh, the killing of the officers, the RCMP officers of Moncton, New Brunswick, a little while ago, none of them uh, were charged with terrorism acts like this. Uh, is this relatively new? or is there a hesitancy on behalf of the Crown to actually lay a charge like this? Uh, It
1: it would be more of the latter. I mean, the terrorism provisions now have been living in the code for some years, Um, but it's more a case of of discretion on the part of the prosecution. And and that is, generally speaking, uh, in my view, to be applauded. Um, You don't want situations where uh, the prosecution is constantly bringing uh, these sorts of very serious charges uh, they've shown that they're willing um, uh, to be um, discerning about when they bring them uh, there are certain circumstances though in which they realistically have no choice uh, and, and the evidence uh, is such that it calls out for it and this may be well be one of these cases I don't want to say that we're going to see more of them as as time goes on I hope we don't but um, uh, it, it may be a situation where in their view they've got a certain level of evidence that they want to see at the outset before they bring one of these charges and and uh, uh, before they really increase the complexity of a case by bringing charges such as this.
0: This happened uh, just after the RCMP were brought into the investigation. The RCMP's Integrated National Security Enforcement Team uh, were, bringing, uh, were brought in to assist the uh, London Police in the investigation. Uh, would they have had input into that in, in, to, to go down this road?
1: Yes. Because they would have been talking to the federal prosecutors. The terrorism offenses um, are, generally speaking, only going to be signed off on by the federal department uh, director of public prosecutions. And there's an important distinction here. Um, Certain charges are only going to be brought and prosecuted by federal prosecutors, drug charges being the most common of those. Those are federal prosecutors, whereas opposed to everything else in in the criminal code, that's done by the provincial attorney general's office here Uh, The terrorism charges are generally uh, in Canada are going to be handled, generally speaking, by the federal prosecutors. So they would speak to the RCMP, who likely would have been brought in by request of the local office uh, once there were aspects of it that started to signal terrorism to them.
0: How difficult is it going to be to to actually prosecute a charge like this? we we'll get to the murder charges in just a second, the attempted murder charges, uh, but but to actually prosecute this as terrorism, uh, to prove, I guess, what was going on in in this individual's head at the time, it's it, it seems like a rather daunting task.
1: It, it can be because oftentimes the the evidence that you would have to support it would be a little bit more equivocal, um, and and it's really. Uh, It's tough to say in a lot of circumstances that someone's actions are motivated by uh, uh, those ideologies. Um, But, you know, it it may be that this is the sort of case where uh, after an interview with the accused, um, after a view of the individual's online life uh, and social media uh, and internet uh, uh, dealings, they may well have enough to say we we've got evidence that we can go forward with so you i think to actually bring a charge like this uh, the prosecution is probably going to want to be very well satisfied that they've got a good deal of evidence they could rely on
0: does it does it muddy the waters at all, though, Andrew? I mean, you know, the the murder charge is significant, of course. The attempted murder charge against the young boy, uh, I, well, the attack on him as well, the survivor. Uh, but when you bring this and add this onto everything else, uh, it, it can can the crown keep their eye on the ball here with the murder charges, or is this just going to broaden this too much and giving you know too much latitude for for a defense? I guess.
1: Well, it, it's going to certainly increase the complexity of it because. Um, It's going to um, ensure that the prosecution brings a lot more evidence than they might necessarily need to bring in just a straight murder charge. But, Bill, there's a good possibility here. And again, we're talking, you and I are talking in a vacuum here. We haven't seen any of the evidence. But there's a good deal. There's a good possibility here that a lot of that evidence is going to dovetail. Um, Evidence of motive is always relevant in a criminal proceeding in a murder case. And it may well be that the evidence of motive here uh, simply dovetails or is the same as uh, the evidence that would go towards the terrorism. So to put it simply, if the motive is terrorism, then the evidence goes to both charges. And then that doesn't really uh, uh, change the game so much for the Crown uh, or the defense, frankly, uh, in this prosecution.
0: Let's uh, talk about, and I don't mean to get too deeply into wordsmithing here, but uh, when we were looking this up, uh, talking about the charge of terrorism, uh, the, the the other phrase that's been thrown around, I think justifiably so too, is hate crime. Uh, the Criminal Code, the Canada's Criminal Code, does not actually contain provisions for hate motivated crimes, as I understand it.
1: They ha- no, they don't. With the the one exception being hate speech. Yeah, uh, there there is a, a provision in the code that. Um, uh that specifically deals with that um but there are no um sort of hate motivated um assault provisions however uh, hate and 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 racial motivation is relevant on sentencing and so while you don't have a specific offense that deals with hate motivated assaults um and hate motivated crime uh that motivation can be a very aggravating uh, feature on sentencing
0: We've heard about victim impact statements in some crime, and crimes and charges, rather, I'm sorry. Uh, is, is that something we can anticipate uh, if, to, to actually hear from, uh, well, friends, associates, et cetera, the, who, and, who saw that and the impact it's having on that? I mean, that can be a very emotional time, uh, and, and I guess we wonder just what kind of an impact that's going to have, or is that something that's automatically uh, part of, uh, of the process?
1: It would be automatically part of the process in terms of after a guilty verdict on a yeah. murder case, you would have friends, family members uh, come in and give victim impact statements. But I wonder here if uh, because it's a charge of terrorism, if he's if the individual is convicted of those charges, does it not become relevant to have victim impact statements from members of the community who's uh, who were targeted for the terror? And I think that might be an area that would differentiate it from a standard murder case. Uh, you could have uh, individuals from the Muslim Canadian community come forward to talk about uh, what, this, uh, uh, what this crime meant for them uh, uh, and how the terror and how they were affected by it. And that would differentiate it from a standard murder case.
0: We're probably talking how long until this actually goes to to trial. I mean, the investigation is ongoing, of course, and this is only, uh, you know, it's been a week and a half or so that we've actually uh, been talking about this and seeing just how police are responding to this. But uh, I'm getting the feeling, Andrew, that uh, there's a lot of work to be done on this before there's actually a trial date set.
1: Yeah, the Crown, uh, that's right, Bill, the Crown has a a duty of disclosure. They have to disclose to the defense everything in their possession uh, that might be relevant to the case and certainly everything that is relevant to the case that's going to take months it takes months in standard murder cases it's certainly going to take months here um and it's only after the substantial bulk of that is done that the parties can sit down and talk about what a trial would look like whether there's going to be a preliminary hearing here uh so i think everybody needs to sort of look at this as a very much a long-term thing and that's just sort of how the system uh, develops in large cases like this. We certainly don't want to see any time wasted uh, in the preparation going forward. There's an, an individual on trial. He has a right to a trial within a, a reasonable amount of time, and the community certainly has an interest in that as well. But it's going to take time. It's going to take uh, months and months as opposed to weeks.
0: Uh, very, very troubling times as uh, as we learn more about this, and like uh, I say, that, uh, we in this this yearning for justice, but we have to be, at the same time be patient. I would imagine the uh, the team for the uh, the crown right now uh, wants to make sure that every I is is dotted and every T is crossed to make sure that, that everything is in place here, uh, and that's going to be a, a long going process. Uh, which is why it's so great to to have you on the program, Andrew, to give us some perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Always a pleasure, Bill. Talk to you soon. You too. Take care. Andrew Fergarelli, of course, lecturer at Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The LRT project has been on again, off again in Hamilton for, well, about 10 years now. At one point, you may remember the provincial government actually cancelled the funding for it. Uh, Then they came back to the table. The federal government jumped in, and we thought this was settled or maybe settled uh, with the big $3.4 billion deal that we talked about a little while ago. But it's not. Not as of yet, anyway. Uh, Liberal MP for uh, Hamilton East Stoney Creek, Bob Bertina, says that he has formally asked the Parliamentary Budget Office to review the multi billion dollar joint commitment from the feds of the province uh, to build the LRT in Hamilton. Uh, Bob Bertina joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Bob, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us and uh, hop on today. Yeah, I'm
2: actually back in Ottawa today. Not for long, but I don't mean that the way you're thinking. But, <laughs> no, but I did have to come to, um, so I'm in my office in Ottawa. Uh, the motive,
0: the motivation for, for the choice here, I, we, we all know, of course, I think it's well documented, uh, how you feel about the LRT project as opposed to other investments in transit. Uh, uh, you were vocal about that as a, as a city councillor, certainly as the mayor, uh, and now, of course, as a, as a sitting member for the, this government right now. Uh it's safe to say, obviously, Bob, you disagree with the decision, but this is not just uh, because you disagree. You're looking at a procedural aspect of this.
2: Well, it's exactly right. And uh, there's. Uh, it's not to say, Bill, that uh, had I been in discussions uh, with people around how we would move forward with transit or LRT in Hamilton, uh, I would bring my complaints forward. They, we, we would discuss them. It would end up someplace all of a sudden out of the blue we find all of this money i have no idea in, in, especially in view of the fact that Bonnie Lissick thinks it's around the auditor general of ontario thinks the 5 billion is probably the number we come up with 3.4 as the total number and a 1.7 billion contribution by the federal government only for an lrt project and i just doesn't make sense to me and so i have an opportunity to ask the parliamentary budget officer and they're considering a review uh just to see does this comply with the grant programs uh, how they work how they're set up and so on because frankly uh, you know shame on me but i can't figure it out and um and i don't think half the council can figure it out either uh,
0: there was a, a statement issue bob i don't know if you've seen this yet a joint statement from uh Minister McKenna and Minister Tassie. Uh, And I'm not going to read the whole thing, it's long and long, but there are a couple of lines here I just wanted to get your comment on. It says, We support strong cities and respect transit decisions made by local decision makers based on what is best for their communities. The Hamilton LRT, a shovel ready project that was supported by the previous Hamilton Council, was the fifth priority transit project to be prioritized by the Ontario government with a request for federal funding. And one other line here Uh, MP Bob Bertina's position on this project is well known, dating back more than a decade. Of course, he has been involved in numerous discussions and engagements about the project and the federal government's role in it. Uh, and it goes on and on and on, but that's the gist of the, the letter. Your, your comments on that?
2: Well, first of all, I would love to see somebody def- define shovel-ready, because if you Google it, there's actually no real <coughs> there's no real definition for it, but it's roughly a project that can come forward in three to four months. Whatever the decision is, uh, or the definition of shovel-ready, this project cannot go into the ground for the better part of two years. To The idea that you can start digging a hole in the early in the, in the next year is, to my mind, ridiculous. But what I think the plot is here is if we can just start digging this thing up, it's just like Metrolink's pulled off this stunt of buying those properties. They had no business buying those properties, in my opinion, but they bought them anyway, and then they said, well, we've already bought the property, and so I think somehow if they can get some kind of a shovel into the ground, then the taxpayer of Hamilton, no matter what the numbers are, are going to get stuck for the next 30 years paying for something that they really don't need. This project is not a transit project. They don't need it. Um, there are many better ways of spending that money and getting uh, a better transit service throughout the city. I don't know how anybody who has a transit mind could see this as a transit project, and even Metrolinx. Metrolinx said this is an attractive transit option. Well, who needs the money from... Hamilton and Canadian taxpayers for attractive options we need options that are going to work and this one is frankly a joke because there are 53 bus stops between Eastgate Square and McMaster University when you put the LRT in there's 17 stops that's better really I mean it it's it the proposal is so ridiculous but if all of the things comply with uh, proper, uh, you know, um, uh, 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 compliance with with government programs and so on. Fine, but uh, I'm certainly not aware of it. And I and just think of this too, Bill. I'm the Hamilton East Stony Creek member of Parliament. Part of that suddenly appears in my writing not unbeknownst to me, and the three municipal councillors who are in my riding are all against it. So the MP and the three counselors are against it, but don't ask them anything. You see where I'm coming from?
0: Oh, well, listen! Uh, the Ontario government's going to start plowing through and build a highway right across the the Green uh, the Greenbelt. I mean, and every town that's involved with in that is against it too. So, I mean, when governments have their mindset set on something, uh, th- they're going to go through it, and they, you know, don't let the facts get out of the way. I, that that shouldn't be surprising to you. But the whole idea are you under the impression, or are you getting the impression from you, from some of your colleagues that if they get the shovel in the ground on this, that that's past the point of no return?
2: That's what it seems to me. The the plot is here. Uh, rushing headlong and um, uh, because all those Toronto projects are underway. So this gets bundled in as though it's one of the five, you know, five priority projects. It's months, if not years away from, from moving ahead. But all of a sudden those other projects in Toronto are contingent on the province buying into the whole thing. So they bully the province. They bully the city of Hamilton. You, we're going to give you the money, but it's only going to be for LRT. Well, if Hamilton City Council feels that uh, their transit option, the solution for Hamilton is something else, the federal government has to be in place through their infrastructure programs to assist them, not to tell them it's this one or nothing. And that I, I just can't believe that that came out of the minister's mouth at that conference.
0: Two ministers, that—that that Minister Mulrooney and Minister McKenna. Basically, I, I talked to them, both of them that day, Bob, as you well know, and that was the—that the, was the message, loud and clear from them. It's LRT or nothing. Uh, yeah, well. it, it, so it wasn't, hey, here's the money, you know, we, we, for transit, you guys do what you want, which is usually what governments do. I get that. Uh, and, you know, and it's up to them. You want to buy buses, you want to do whatever you want. you get some choices here. But this this is not a choice, uh, which is, it's, oh, well, I had one counselor say it's like putting a gun to my head, but I'm not so sure it's that dramatic. But it's going to be a yes or no on this. But uh, when those ministers speaking for their government say this is the only option you've got, is the debate over?
2: No, because we're continuing the debate with um, things like my interventions. And I honestly, Bill, I as much as my detractors attack me personally, without going through point by point, well, he said this, but this is the truth or that or that. No, no, it's just that I'm some kind of an idiot or whatever. That's fine. You know, I was through that in the last election and I did pretty well, but on the other side of it are very well-founded discussions going on based on the approach that I've taken that that weigh in on the merits of what I'm saying. And so I'm glad to sit. I would gladly sit in an auditorium if we had, you know, social distancing was not the case, with Minister uh, McKenna and Tassie, and say, okay, let's go point by point over this, and let's figure out what the best thing for Hamilton is. I've had this file since 2007. The first day that it came in, I went right to Jill Stevens, the engineer in charge of the project at the city, and said, Jill, great LRT, we're going to have it, but this route doesn't work. It's got to go A-line, airport, hospital, another hospital, city administrative center, ghost station, waterfront. Where does this one go? It goes from Eastgate Square to McMaster, and it doesn't attack uh, GO stations. There's not even any growth. You you plan transit around growth. Where's the growth? Stony Creek Mountain, Airport District, and so on. They're hoping they'll get somebody's going to build a big condo at the corner of Kenilworth and Main, with you know clever-looking uh, people with briefcases all going and getting on a nice shiny train to go downtown. It's so ridiculous and even the MetroLink documents say they do not anticipate much commercial or residential growth on the central and east parts of the route that's in the MetroLink document
0: but are we still going to be debating the merits of this? I mean, this really comes down to funding at this stage, doesn't it? I mean, and that's the thrust of, of what uh, you've you've asked uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office to look at. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by the response, though, Bob. Uh, they say they are considering the request, as you mentioned, uh, yeah. if, whether or not to proceed with this. They and they go on to say the timing of analysis will depend on the level of interest from other parliamentarians as well as other non-discretionary projects. Are legally up? Op- they are obligated to to take. They seem to be insinuating here that you're going to have to get some support from colleagues to even go forward on this. Uh, or they may just come back and say, yeah, well, our docket's pretty full. We haven't got time for this right now. So there's, there's no guarantee this is actually going to happen, is there?
2: Well, no, absolutely not. But uh, I felt that I had to take this step, and I haven't been rejected so far. And when you talk about colleagues, I have there are 338 potential colleagues in, in Parliament. I had a nice chat this morning with Peter Kent. And he had some interesting things to say about Metrolinks. So I don't have to cobble together a a little posse of the people who sit on my side of the house when we're allowed to sit in the house, which we're not. Uh, But it could be lots of other parliamentarians who would also be curious to know whether ministers can pull money out of the hat um, in the manner that it seems to have happened. And, and I'm glad to, if, this does go through and there is a review and everything's uh fine great but you don't know that and i don't know that right now and nobody on council knows that phil Verser doesn't there's another guy metrolinks of all this time that we took and we still didn't get the answers last uh the last meeting so the whole thing was delayed and now I understand there's some um, uh, information as the city published something about, uh, maybe you haven't read it, but somebody called me to say, oh, they're, they're claiming it's the cost to the taxpayer would be between eight and 16 million for operation and maintenance uh, on an annual basis. Did you hear that?
0: The number that I saw was uh, 600 million gross over 30 years or 20 million dollars a year.
2: Right. Okay, That's the number roughly that I would say is closer to the mark. Uh, I think there's a lower number uh, that the city is publishing. But whatever the case, 20000000 million doesn't include, apparently, because the real number seems to be $900 million, not $600 million, but that includes interest and inflation. So Warren Buffett is going to be delighted to know that somebody in the city thinks there's going to be no inflation and no interest rates in- increase in the next. 30 years but you know that's a wonderful knowledge and piece of investment knowledge but let's say it is 20 million bill every year for the next 30 years the taxpayers of the city of hamilton are going to be paying 20 million dollars every year for what what could you do with the 20 million dollars
0: well, yeah, but in the, when they had the debate about this on council a couple of weeks ago, Bob which also pointed out to them that uh, that twenty million dollars is that, that doesn't include, of course, the uh, the the money that they're getting from uh, riders, the fair ridership, uh, and, and that's supposed to mitigate that cost. Now, that's that's the argument, anyway. But uh, listen, I got a couple of minutes left. And I want to ask yeah. you one other thing about process, if I could, because uh, yeah. I was trying to get some information about this this morning and it was a little hazy. Yeah. How much muscle does the uh, the the this office that you've asked them to look into, the Parliamentary Budget Office, have, is their decision, if they do look at this, and we're kind of getting into the hypothesis here, if they go through with this, if they say, well, yeah, we got a problem here, what happens then? I mean, is, is what they say binding? Because Is the government going to be forced to do something? Or can they just say, well, okay, thanks for that, we'll catch you later? What, what's, 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 what's next it's here?
2: A, it's an independent body. Bonnie Lissick, the Auditor General of Ontario, is an independent auditor. She presents her findings, um, coroners, juries, and so on. So um, the point is that it it could be very embarrassing for the federal government and one of his leading ministers to uh, be presented with the fact that their uh, procedures they took with regard to this grant did not comply with the with the grant. Now, what happens, that's up to Canada, to Canadians, to decide when they hear evidence about how things are done in Ottawa. And so uh, this, people don't have to worry. You know, for those of you who are just desperate to wait and get on that shiny train, nothing Bob Ratina is going to do will clobber that and just knock it off the rails. It's just food for thought you if we think that we're a smart government doing the best that we can for canadians and hamiltonians then let's see the evidence and if the evidence doesn't bear that out well there are elections coming up
0: if okay that's that's one hypothesis the other one is uh, the budget office does nothing sorry we haven't got time for this or sorry we think this is frivolous i mean there could be any number of reasons why uh do you drop the fight is that it
2: no, the, uh, they would never say frivolous. Uh, the, they wouldn't have accepted it if it was frivolous. There's a clear understanding. Uh, it's a simple question: Does this? Comp- did they go through the proper uh, mechanisms? Uh, the way the program is designed to uh, to get, get that money, but then maybe the Treasury Board wants to take a look at it because we're coming out of a pandemic with really. No solid knowledge of how the economy, how we're going to support the huge debt that we're accumulating. And with so many needs, the city of Hamilton is $200 million every year short of fixing infrastructure. $200 million, and to move six-inch pipes on Queenston Road over and put a new one in is not fixing the infrastructure of Hamilton. It's actually repairing infrastructure that's already been repaired in most cases. So there's no good, good,
0: advantage I, I, yeah. on that. We don't want to go too, down the ro- too far down the road. I don't want to debate the p- pros and cons because we've heard all those arguments because what the Parliamentary Budget Office is really going to look at is your request. Is this within the bounds of what the, the government yeah. should be doing? Now, exactly. you've already told us that, that you've n- you're not going to run in the next federal election because you disagree with your government's position on this. We yeah. understand that. But if you want to continue your opposition to this... Uh, do you still consider public office as an option? Is that the, the, the pulpit you need to be able to continue that? Or uh, do you just go quietly into that good night after the next federal election?
2: Yeah, well, it's almost premature to say things like that, because uh, uh, certainly there are many voices in our government who are desperate to get a September election. However, that doesn't necessarily mean there will be one. And so I could be sitting around here until 2023, and mm-hmm. which would be my original intention when I, when I ran for this office. But should everything change, um, then I have to make another decision. And what would my options be? Because I'm actually trying to fix a problem I see in the Liberal Party. If decisions like this can be made the way they were made, the, to my understanding, I'm not in favor of that. And I think we can do better as a liberal. I could run it. Well, into it getting into Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say I that, that doesn't necessarily when you
0: again. say I, I, you know, we've got options. You, would you would you cross the floor in Parliament? Would you run no. for another party? No, so I you, wouldn't but cross you,
2: the floor. You, you, but I, could, I uh, they might throw me out. Uh, then I'd be an independent.
0: So that's an option. Uh, running yeah. for mayor is an option. Uh, but yeah. you haven't made up your mind about either no, yet. No, no.
2: I want to. I, I want to get this nailed down. Um, and for all I know, we we'll would still be. I'll still be around for the next couple of years. Who knows, Bill? But I'm not declaring anything. This is not about the future. This is solving a problem that's staring Hamilton taxpayers in the face. They haven't got a clue how much this is going to cost them, and nobody's really giving them good information.
0: Well, the next step, obviously, is uh, is with the parliamentary budget office. The ball's yep. in their court right now. We'll yep. certainly be watching to see what they're going to do. Bob, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time, and uh, yeah. we'll stay in touch as this unfolds.
2: Absolutely. Thanks, Bob.
0: Take care. Bob Bertino, of course. Uh, the... Uh, MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek uh, uh, seeking assistance from the Parliamentary Budget Office, and uh, to be clear, we all know about Bob's opposition to this project on principle too. But he's basically asking, is this legal? Is what the government doing within the parameters of what they should be doing with that money? It'll be interesting to see just how the uh, Budget Office responds to that request. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on
3: 900 CHML.
0: It's game on! Canadian Football League announcing yesterday: yes, there is going to be a season. Yes, it's going to be 14 games. Yes, Yes, it's going to start in August. And uh, CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosie says that, uh, well, the league and the players have been working very, very hard on the COVID protocols. In the next
1: couple of days, we're going to be sharing more and more about our about our more specific plans for the 2021 season. But we have, uh, with the players' help and really a lot of initiative shown on both sides, we put together a really good strategy for uh, making sure that our teams can, can operate and have, a, and have a robust 2021 season.
0: So uh, let's get started and let's get some of the details about that. And to, uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program Matt Afanek. Matt, of course, is the president and COO of business operations with your Hamilton Tiger Cats. Uh, Matt, uh, welcome back to the program on a pretty good news day today.
3: Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. And, and I'd go one step further. Uh, an amazing uh, news day, and a, and a hugely positive one for uh, Tiger Cat fans, the Hamilton community, and CFL fans everywhere that came down yesterday.
0: For folks that, that may not be aware of the enormity of, of coming to a, an agreement like this, uh, you know, <clears throat> even the players that are involved in this—I don't just mean the football players, but I mean the participants in this—you've got the league, you've got the uh, the players' association, uh, you've got the communities where these are, these stadiums are there, you've got the medical offices of health, uh, you've got the provincial governments, the federal government involved in this—to uh, get everybody onto the same page on this was just a huge, huge task. Uh, I hope Randy Ambrosi slept in today because he certainly earned it.
3: Well said, and uh, I think it's a great place to start, is that notion of partnership, Bill. I've been around the CFL for a long time, and I'm not sure I've ever seen um, a task as monumental as this, but a reflection of partnership as great. You you alluded to, frankly, most, if not all, of the key stakeholders in that group, from the board to the commissioner the league office, obviously our players, um, coaches, public health, government. It truly is a, a wide circle of people that contributed positively to get this done in a great spirit, of wanting to get the institution of the Canadian Football League and here in Hamilton, the Tiger Cats back onto the field, and you know, I'd say the only group that's been was omitted directly there, but also deserves uh, a ton of praise and credit is just is just fans and and partners uh, mm-hmm. of our league who, at the end of the day, uh, provide the support and frankly the you know, a lot of the motivation we needed to keep pressing through and finding a solution. Is rooted in obviously the importance of our fans and partners, so, and our players. So, all of those things coming together, Bill, a huge undertaking, but uh, thrilled to get there
0: well especially here because uh that means game on great cup this year this uh, in, on december the 12th uh and and i know that you and your staff have been working diligently toward that end uh, and, and uh, there's a lot going to be happening here and i understand what randy said uh, uh you know it really depends on on how we progress here I, I by that i mean as a province vaccination rates and things of this nature that's going to dictate who's going to be in the stands and how many are going to be in the stands we get that and that's kind of beyond your control at this stage and you're simply uh waiting to get that information i guess the First step in that, though, was the announcement we, you got from the uh, Ontario government about the uh, the your return to play program, uh, which basically gets you guys back on the field.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and and you know kudos to the, the the league office and CFLPA and all who contributed to those health and safety protocols. They're incredibly robust, and thanks to uh, you know the officials and government who who helped us get it through. But you know I think a theme here in all of this bill, which is which is hugely important, is that notion of certainty, right? So for the first yeah. time. You know, I think in in many, many months, um, probably well over a year, you know, we're in a position to look at our business holistically with a degree of certainty we just haven't had up to this point. So we know when training camps are opening, we know when our first games are, we know we don't have absolute certainty on all facets of the business yet, and you alluded to that as, as, you know, kind of fans being one element of that, but we certainly have more certainty than we've had in in quite a long time. And, you know, that certainty provides assurance to plan the business, to decide, provides you know, assurance for our players and coaches relative to what they're working towards. And, you know, obviously they're hugely passionate about what they do. This is their livelihood. So that certainty alone um, is hugely beneficial. You know, your comment fans, yeah, we're we're, we're confident. Um, you know, it's trending positively and, and with the way things are going, but you nailed it. This is a function of how do we do um, as a community, as a province, and ultimately as a country in, in our ongoing effort in uh, getting vaccinated. That's, that's the key to get out of this all told holistically, uh, and certainly as it applies to maximizing fans and stands and making sure the numbers as a result stay low. So, you know, still some work to do as we approach um, the season start for that, but uh, we wouldn't get to that without the announcement of yesterday.
0: August fifth is uh, is when we're going to get started, uh, because of what's happening here in Ontario and because of of, of the the problems we have here with the vaccination rates and, and some of the concerns about social distancing, uh it seems as if uh, the first couple of games, at least for the Cats, are going to be on the road, uh, which is not unusual. I mean, I think a, couple, a couple of years ago, I think he started two games out west before he came back here. Uh, that was just the, the the nature of the schedule at that time. But it's, uh, I guess the expectation here is the first home game is going to be the Labor Day Classic.
3: Well, Bill the CFL schedule is officially released in about uh, 80 minutes, so I will uh, <laughs> I will speak in generalities without right. uh, stealing the thunder of our own, of our own announcement. But uh, yeah, to speak to your point about starting on the road, yeah, we we've, we've been uh, um, kind of open about that as a league, and the commissioners talked about that frankly since the season delay announcement of a couple months ago, let alone yesterday's announcement. So you know we have got to follow the the trends and and where we're going to put ourselves in the best position to to have those fans and as it relates to our situation in hamilton yeah we we have extensive uh experience in starting on the road if you recall the uh 2015 season where we had the pan am games we didn't play our home opener until the civic holiday weekend right So in august so you know we've been through this in the past obviously this is a much different um circumstance but uh Regardless, starting out on the road and, and coming back to Hamilton when we're in, in the best possible position to do that, that'll all be revealed in, uh, when the
0: schedule is released officially uh, at noon today. Okay, and that's going to be great news, but I, th- I think we can safely say that, uh, that there will be a Labor Day Classic this year at Morton uh, Field, and we'll get confirmation on that, I guess, in a couple of hours.
3: I, I, th- I think you're on to something, Bill.
0: <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh, but, uh, What about the playing side? I know, you know, Coach O and everybody else is is getting together right now. Uh, One of the concerns, I guess, and this was all part of the negotiation, Matt, uh, the American players coming up here now, uh, that seems to be one of the negotiated points. You've talked to governments about this, uh, and I know once again, of course, the Ontario government and the federal government have both been involved in that to get them up here. Uh, Are there any prerequisites about that, about vis-a-vis proof of vaccination, things of this nature that they're asking for here?
3: No, not as it relates to the proof vaccination obviously we're encouraging players uh to to get vaccinated no different than we are fans relative to you know what that will symbolize but you know of course bill within the health and safety protocol there's all sorts of um you know kind of conditions and requirements no different than you know kind of as we're living as as kind of citizens in this province right now so things from quarantining to when we get in facilities distancing masking all of the required public health uh, protocols and requirements are in place um, for that and and we're now in a position where with that now approved um, by the uh by the provincial health authority we're really in implementation phase uh in day 1 of that now uh with regards to our preparation for players and coaches when they kick off uh training camp on uh the 10th of July
0: Uh, By the way, we should talk about that training camp too because you've had a a great partnership with McMaster University over the years uh, and had training camp there. And, of course, you've used some of the dorms there for for putting the players up uh, during the training camp. Uh, My understanding is obviously because of COVID protocols, uh, that's not going to happen this year. You'll actually be having the training camp right at Tim Horton Field.
3: Yeah, that's correct, Bill. And I'd I'd only correct you in that we we, we still have a great partnership with Max. This is something that both of us, uh, both entities, both organizations wanted to, make happen but to your point circumstances uh, of the pandemic and obviously the uh, overriding importance of health and safety for everybody um, just you know kind of took precedent in this year so yes we will be doing uh, our training camp execution at Tim Hortons Field as, as you know we're blessed to have an amazing city facility that we work within there's lots of space lots of area to distance um, so we're, we're in a great position to do that there and the players will um, you know stay within protocol at a hotel in the city, not uh, not in
0: dormitories. And it is a one off. Obviously, you guys will be back and back next year, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Th- the other element to this too, because ever since, even going back to when I was a, a little kid, Matt, one of the things I always used to love to do was to go down to the old Civic Stadium and and, and watch these guys during training camp because the doors are usually open. Uh, public yeah. won't be allowed in again uh, during training camp sessions anyway. And again, this is this is part of the COVID protocol. Yeah,
3: it is unfortunately, and you know with of fan attendance being tied to where we are and as we all know we're we're in stage one uh, right now we're hopeful that uh by the time training camp starts with uh uh we'll be in stage two but regardless that it doesn't impact our protocol calls for no fans during training camp so while it's uh, you know disappointing bill that we can't uh, continue that great tradition in this year alone you know obviously i'll we'll just make sure everyone's uh, equally excited to get back to the building to watch the team actually play but uh, unfortunately that's uh bit of a casualty of the health and safety protocol for this year uh
0: what, what are next steps for you and your staff at the stage matt uh as you say the schedule is going to be announced at, at noon today a little less than two hours from now and and that'll confirm okay these are the dates here are the home games etc etc uh you got a lot of season ticket holders to get in touch with right now and and that by the way is a great story in and of itself uh it's been a very rough time during the pandemic of course for the cfl but the tiger cat fans especially the season ticket holders i've talked to just say no we're cool we, you know when it's time again, we'll, we'll be there. I know nobody's abandoning ship here. They're just waiting to get back to it, and that's why they're so excited about this right now. So what's what's the process right now to get back in touch with them and, and, and inform them about uh, their next steps about uh, about getting back into Tim Horton field?
3: Yeah, absolutely, and, and I'm glad you brought it up, Bill, and, and, and our appreciation um, of our season seat holders cannot be overstated that they have been just uh, remarkable they're always remarkable, but especially through this this period um, their support of the club has been just uh, you know as i said can't be overstated so you'll see a series of of information and communication coming out to celebrate the release of the schedule today you know we'll have some policy the reality is as it relates to to tickets, we obviously don't have all the information um, today, knowing that uh, you know yeah. the labor that that games are still you know a couple months away relative to playing at home, so public health will continue to evolve but season seat holders need to hear that in the event that there could be capacity restriction, um, you know, season seat holders will obviously have first access to any available seats. So we'll take care of our great season seat holders first. And it's like anything, Bill, as as we progress in the year here and work up to December 12th in the Grey Cup, um, the, the program remains the same. The only way to guarantee yourself a Grey Cup seat is to be a Ticat season seat holder. So anyone out there that's listening that isn't currently one of those, you can get in touch with the office and become one. But as it relates to our existing season seed holders, yeah, that'll be our policy. And this will continue to evolve over the summer, and hopefully these positive trends that we've been seeing in vaccination and case rates that are driving us through these various stages will continue that momentum over the course of the coming weeks and months and uh, put ourselves in the best position.
0: This is really important for you uh, from your standpoint, too, though, because there's a, a lot of things that were up in the air uh, to do with the Great Cup and the festival, and, and I have every confidence this is going to be a fabulous festival. But... Uh, but, I mean, you've got to confirm acts. You've got to confirm entertainment venues, things of this nature. You can do that now because you've got firm dates. You know that this is going to be happening, uh, whereas before you could say, well, you know, can you can't keep this open? Uh, this, the fact that there's a, a, a certainty to this right now has got to be reassuring for you and for everybody, I guess, around the league.
3: Yeah, no doubt, and and I can say that everyone across the league um, is just so excited to have the Grey Cup come back to such a great football market like Hamilton with the amazing fans that we have You know, relative to the Great Cup planning, for sure, we've been, you know, behind the scenes have had a a great plan in place with our our partners at Tourism Hamilton um, and other partners for the better part of months. Yes, we've had to continue to evolve some of it relative to uh, relative to, to the impacts of COVID, but at the same time. You know, we're we're still planning a full Grey Cup festival and a full Grey Cup game. That's that's not been compromised. So we've got a lot of that work done behind the scenes. So to your point, with elements of certainty and the certainty of a start date of the season comes the ability to actually start implementing those plans with that same degree of certainty. So fans can expect to see more of these details in the weeks and months ahead. But uh, Grey Cup, we're, uh, we're extremely excited about the plan and, and look forward to sharing more of those details with the fans and the community at large uh, in short order.
0: Well, it's uh, it's an exciting time for everybody, and, uh, and like I say, I know that you and your staff have been working diligently on this uh, through all of this because uh, it's not as if you're starting with a blank slate. We already know what's going to be happening. I already know the date of the game. Uh, I talked to C- Commissioner Ambrosi on the show a couple of weeks ago, as you know, Matt, and he uh, guaranteed us uh, that this is going to be one of the best Great Cup festivals of all time. A, because he knows what you guys are planning, but B, the league really wants to get behind this. It's you know the the, the message here, I guess, from Randy and from from all the teams right now is we're back, uh, and that's welcome news but I think th- there's a, an indication here he wants to make a big splash uh, through this whole season to kind of get everybody back on track
3: yeah and, and, and Bill I think that this is shaping up to be you know short of a Montreal Canadian Stanley Cup run here this, this is likely <laughs> to be the first you know major Canadian championship awarded on Canadian soil in what will be almost two years time uh, when this is presented to, uh, at Tim Horton's field in December so with that excitement alone, or excuse me with that Fact alone creates an unbelievable excitement, and listen, we we're back on the field after a missed season, so that alone creates you know just a great amount of energy and enthusiasm relative to what we're doing, and we're incredibly fortunate that this historic Canadian institution of an event, the Grey Cup, is happening in our city at this time, and will shine an amazing light you know, provincially, nationally, internationally on the great city of Hamilton and what we're able to pull together. So for all of those reasons, yeah, it's, 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 it's things this big, Bill, are not singular efforts. It's not the team. It's us working in collaboration with, with everybody involved in the CFL ecosystem, obviously including our league office, our partners, the city, the province, and everyone involved. But that coming together we think is going to be magical on December, you know, really 8th to 12th
0: um, here in Hamilton. Uh, you got a lot on your plate, Matt. I'm going to let you go now and get back to work. Uh, <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks again for this, and uh, congratulations again to, to the to the organization, to you, and to Scott, and, and everybody else who's been uh, working behind the scenes to make this thing go. Uh, we're just excited about this, and uh, we'll, by the way, have that scheduled, the uh, CFL official schedule, uh, just afternoon today. Uh, we'll talk to again you soon, Matt. Thank, take care. Yeah, appreciate the time, Bill. Be well. Thank you. Matt Apenek, of course, President, COO of the Business Operations for your Hamilton Tiger Cats. Uh, August 5th is the start. Probably the first home game is going to be Labor Day. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You can't officially say that until the league announces the schedule at noon today, but, uh, it's looking pretty good, so.